it's recording. Let's this start. is episode one of Creeps and Crime Storytime. So we are Charlie and Sophie. We're two sisters and we love crime. Yes, we do. And we love weird mysteries. And we're going to tell each other stories. Yes. And share those stories with you. So for the first episode, we decided to go with something that's definitely a bit crimey and it's definitely a bit creepy and it's one of the most popular it's very creepy and it's one of the most famous unsolved weird mystery things out there it's huge so you can't miss it you can't miss it so we've decided to go with the summer slam i've done all the research and i'm going to be telling sophie the story yes so sophie already knows a lot of this case like the the backbone of the case so hopefully i'm really hoping that i've found some things that sophie doesn't know you're hanging yourself up rather than i really hope so i really hope to take you on a journey our story begins on a beach in australia on the first day of summer in the southern hemisphere the year is 1948 and on the last day of november a jeweler named john bain lyons and his wife went for an evening walk along somerton beach this is Australian summer, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, so summer all in the, the weather's backwards. From it now on, <laughs> the seasons won't make sense. So basically, <laughs> summer in the southern hemisphere starts around the same time as our I winter. I keep forgetting this case is in Australia. It's in Australia. It's I can't imagine. I've seen that picture. Yeah. He possibly has an Australian accent. He, yeah. He does not. He was like chilling on the beach. That's so sad. Dead. Dead. He was like chilling as hard as you He's can ever chill. He's dead with no accent. Like... He could have said, well, this is the thing. There's so, so much about him we don't know. So he could have had an Australian accent. We're going to go into it. He could have come from somewhere else. Yeah. There's a lot that we don't know about him. So much Basically everything. Um, but yeah, so this is literally the first day of summer mm. in Australia. Australian is summer. when this whole thing kicks off. Yeah. So on the fucking hell where am I? <laughs> so, so on the last day of November in the evening, Yeah. this is like the night before the first day of summer. Mm. A jeweler named John Baylines and his wife went for a stroll along Somerton Beach right. in the evening. And at around seven o'clock in the evening, they passed a man lying on his back on the sand away from the shoreline. His head was leaning back against the sea wall and he was facing out to sea. Can you envision this in your head? I can. So he's just chilling, lying down like you watch Netflix in bed. And like when it says to you, are you still watching this? And you've got your head propped up and you're like, fuck this, of course I'm still watching this. That's too tired to press okay. Yeah, so this is the position that he's in. Mm. Um, as the pair passed by him, the man lifted his right arm up to its fullest extent and then he let it fall back down and it landed next to him on the sand. Oh, wow. John Lyons thought that the guy was really drunk and trying to, to raise a cigarette he'd lit or trying to light a cigarette because obviously when you're yeah. drunk, your movement is all over the place and you're you think off. yeah you think things are further away than they are closer or whatever so mm-hmm. john lines just saw this dude chilling and thought he was trying to light a cigarette but just missed completely <laughs> that's that's <laughs> what he do. thought was going on it's what happens when you drink heavily that's exactly it so they passed him by at this point oh, a second okay. couple who haven't ever been named also passed him by half an hour after john lines and his wife did um the street lights came around came on around half seven which is around the same time of the second sighting. So mm. they got more of a look at him because the streetlights had come on. Yeah. Um, rather than walking straight past him, the couple were in the same spot for about half an hour. And this was along the Esplanade. 
probably be pronouncing that wrong, which is like a walkway above him. So they were looking more down on him. And mm. he was in their view for the whole time they were there. Mm. This couple did think that his position may have changed during this time, although they didn't actually see him move. Mm. He was still on his back, although this time his left arm was out. Mm. So they didn't see him move, but mm. they thought later on that during the time they were there, he might have moved positions during that time. Mm. Um, the woman recalled that she thought he was dressed really strangely for somebody who was taking a nap on the beach because he was wearing a full-ass suit. How common like, is taking naps on beaches, though? I mean, if you I live... Never. Yeah, but we live in, like, the rainiest, like, city in England. Why are you worried about living in the city? Because I'm going to sleep on I the guess beach. so, but this is, like, the 40s. Anyway, so, I mean, to be honest, mm. like, it's... Even beaches in England, it's not really that hot. If you're in, like, a really hot country... Yeah. And the weather's great. Yeah. And the sand is warm. And you're drunk. Yeah, but if you're getting robbed on the beach, your direction is probably towards the robber or in the sea. Yeah, but with, he's, no, he's not getting robbed. He's Yeah, but chilling. if you're asleep and someone's, like, going to get you. Yeah, but why are you assuming someone's going to get you? He got got. He got no. uh, You know what? This is what he got got. Okay, okay, right. Okay, so anyway, he was wearing a weird outfit for taking a nap. He was wearing a weird outfit. He was wearing a suit and his shoes were really polished. Ooh. So he he had yeah. like shiny feet going he had on. Plans. He had pla- well, after this nap. Well, uh, or maybe he was stressed to death. Maybe we don't know. This is the thing. Mm. So the boyfriend remarked that he was absolutely certain that the man was soundly asleep because the mosquitoes around his face were not <gasps> appearing to bother oh, him. He's dead. So <laughs> there was mosquitoes around his face, I didn't know and that. this That's guy I didn't know. was not oh. batting them away. So the boyfriend was like. The boyfriend said to his girlfriend, quote, he must be dead to the world not to notice them, end well, quote. You know, get what he said. <laughs> well, he was right. Oh. He was more right than he realised. So, early the next yeah. morning, yeah. John Lyons, the guy who first saw him. With the wife. With the wife. He went out for a swim. What about the children at the house? There was guys with horses, <laughs> but they, they come up in a second. Oh, okay. So, early the next morning, John Lyons went out for a swim. Everything went well. He didn't get eaten by a shark, Good. which is great because that happens a lot mm-hmm. in Australia. Yeah. And he began to walk back up the beach afterwards. He noticed that a small crowd had gathered. Yeah. Among those were some like teenagers oh. with horses. So, a small crowd of people had gathered around Dang. the spot where he noticed the guy was, as he thought, was sleeping off his drunkenness. Oh. And he was like, oh shit, that's where I saw that drunk dude. So he made it to the front of the crowd to see the man's body in the same pose as when he saw it the previous night. His head was, let me turn this page, I hate the ASMR, his head was propped up against the seawall and his ankles were crossed. However, it was clear that the man was dead. Police were called and they arrived at about 6.30am. Their initial thought was that the man had passed away in the night while he was sleeping. Hmm. Um, witnesses from that morning have stated that there was a half-smoked cigarette on his right collar, um, slightly under his chin. Oh. It looked as though the cigarette had fallen from his mouth and stayed just where it fell. Do you happen to know if this guy got bitten or was dead? Um, when you're relaxed, like I'm wearing a shirt, I don't do my top button. I don't know if his top button was done up, but I do know that he was wearing a full suit with like mm. a jacket, a waistcoat, a shirt. You know what? I can check 
there are quite widely circulated photos of his mm. autopsy, which I will be posting on the Instagram if you want to have a look. Um, I will post them up so that you can have a look at it while we're discussing it. So do you think when someone dies and there's a CT line in your pythium, yeah. would his body have given any reaction to the nuclear bolt? It looks as though his top button was done up oh. with a tie. Mm. Um, what do you, so what do you mean his body would have reacted? Like, you know when you're alive. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm familiar with the concept of being alive. Yeah. <laughs> Is he going to get on the bike? Yeah. Right here on your arm? Yes. He then goes red and inflames his whole reaction to the stuff yeah, that's yeah. in it. Yeah. Like you're injured? Yes. So when a mosquito bites you, mm-hmm. um, it gets all inflamed and swells up and goes red because the cells in your body are reacting mm-hmm. to the mosquito bite. And it's yeah. able to do that because there's blood flowing, your heart is beating and you're alive. Right. So if a man is dead, his mm-hmm. cells are dead yeah. and his cells cannot react to anything because they have no way of knowing life because True. your body's not alive. So yeah, he wouldn't <laughs> have had, like the puncture wound from the mosquitoes, like any like tiny microscopic punctures that mm. the mosquitoes made would have been there, but there wouldn't have, like, they wouldn't have swelled up or anything. There wouldn't have been any oh. actual like reaction from his body. Cool. Only what was done to it. Mm. Does that make sense? Confusing. Right. Where the fuck was I up to? Cigarette. Yeah. Other sources report that there was also a full unlit cigarette just popped behind his right ear. Oh, that's a shame. Uh, but that's not every source that says that. It's only some of them. Really? Okay. Um, but that is something that some people said that they witnessed. Mm. The body arrived at the Royal Adelaide Hospital around three hours later, where Dr. John Barclay Bennett examined him. Mm. Now, this is where it starts to get more weird, because it wasn't weird enough already. Um, when the body arrived at the hospital mortuary, the doctor agreed with the police that the man could have experienced heart failure in his sleep. But he also suggested that there was a second possibility, and that is that the man could have been poisoned. Mm. An external examination of the body showed what he was carrying on him at the time. He carried a pack of Army Club cigarettes, although the cigarettes inside the box were of a different, more expensive brand, called Kensico. In his pocket, he had a second-class train ticket from Adelaide to Henley Beach, which appeared not to have ever been used which is weird. There was a bus ticket, a comb, which was manufactured in America, a half-empty packet of juicy fruit chewing gum, because even mystery men have to stay fresh, and a box of Bryant and May matches that was about three-quarters empty. He didn't have any wallet, he didn't have any money, or he didn't have any ID. So that didn't help. (laughs) So once his pockets had been emptied, the examiners then removed the man's clothing. Here they noticed that the double-breasted jacket he wore was American tailoring, which is presumably something more obvious in the 40s than it is now. Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, so that's, they thought, oh, this is weird, this is, this is American-made. Yeah. Even more mysteriously than that, mm-hmm. all of the labels in his clothes had been removed. So all the labels, like the manufacturer's labels on all his clothes had been cut out. That was not. It takes time. It takes time. The trouser pocket had been repaired with an orange thread that was quite distinctive. Um, A full autopsy was, of course, conducted on the man, which yielded some interesting results. So Dr. Cleland, the coroner, revealed that the man who had... I can't read my own handwriting. 
Um, the coroner of Vermont that the man had a Britisher quote oh. appearance. Yeah. I don't know what that means. But the coroner so. looked at him and thought, oh, he looks, quote, British. Yeah. I don't know if I could tell apart an Australian person and a British person just by looking at them. Clothes. But this guy, mm. it wasn't the clothes, it was just the way he looked at his face, I think. Because oh, okay. the clothes were American tailoring. Yeah. I think it's just the way that his face looked. He looked British. I, I see that. I kind of get yeah. it, sort of. Good I'm point. not very good at that kind of thing, though, so I don't know if I'd notice. Yeah. But that's what the coroner thought. Mm-hmm. He was 5'11 and in top physical shape. Oh, he's taller than I thought. Yeah, he's 5'11. For some reason, I think he's 5'5 five five or 5'6. Five he he looks, looks like, like a short guy. of his head? Yeah. He looks like a short British man. Uh, if that's <laughs> what you think. I can't, no, um, not really. He was in great physical shape, though. He was, so he was tall. Mm. He was apparently, like... Kind of buff. Yeah, kind of buff. Like, he was in great shape. He wasn't overweight. Mm. He was... It said here, it, the coroner says, his leg muscle was so well developed Ooh. that Cleveland remarked that they were similar to those of a ballet dancer. Wow. He specifically looked at his legs mm. and thought, those fucking calf muscles are so tight, he looks like he does ballet. Maybe he did. Maybe he did. But, yeah, so Cleveland thought... Specifically ballet dancer. Okay, mm. moving on. So, his last meal was partially digested in his stomach, which was a patty. Mm. However, that isn't all that was in his stomach. Oh. There was also a large quantity of blood, which obviously is not supposed to be there. No. Um, and there was also blood found in his liver. Again, That's not supposed down to be there. In your organs. So yeah, so your liver is above your stomach. So you find the source of the blood, you say? This is the next part. Oh. So... Um, his spleen was also enlarged to about three times its normal size, which again, unusual. Mm. All of these things pointed towards the possibility that the coroner suspected earlier that he had been poisoned. Okay. Unfortunately, and strangely, there were no traces of poison in the man's body, and the doctor concluded the report with, quote, I am quite convinced that the death could not have been natural. The poison... I suggested was a barbiturate or soluble hypnotic end quote the doctor believed that the poison was not in the pasty in his stomach which was eaten between three and four hours before he died mm. but administered in another way at an inquest into the death that was conducted the following year an eminent professor of physiology and pharmacology sir cedric stanton hicks suggested that a rare poison had been used one that quote decomposed very early after death, end quote, therefore leaving no trace. Hicks was convinced that the poisons were so dangerous that he actually refused to say the names out loud in open court. Instead, he wrote the names down oh. and then passed them to Cleveland on a piece of paper with the names written on them oh. because he thought if, if this gets out, people are just going to be killing each other all over the place because these are so dangerous. Oh, because you've been access it everywhere? It's not because it's easily oh. accessible, but it's because it's so untraceable. Yeah. He was like... I don't want people to just be like fucking up everybody. It's funny because when I hear that that bit of information, it always sounds like he's scared to say it because it might get him. Oh, like Voldemort. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the poisons who shall not be named. The signs are gonna get me. <laughs> That's what it makes me think of. I maybe he was scared of that too. Who knows? We weren't there. He might have just been a particularly neurotic professor. And he said that too. He probably yeah. Mr. Fawlty. Yeah, Mr. Instead, he opted to pass the case 
paper. The poisons were actually kept a secret for the from the public <laughs> until the 1980s. Oh my god. We didn't know what they were until the 80s, when Ooh. the names were actually released. I have them here. <laughs> I'm glad you do. They are Digitalis and Wabin. Wabin. Wabin is spelled O-U-A-B-I-N. Digitalis is far more familiar to those of the true Lion sort of community. Mm-hmm. Um, but Wabin is a lot more obscure because it's a rare glycoside made from the seeds of plants found in Africa. Historically, it was used by Somali tribes to add poison into their arrow tips, which is where it still originates. Oh, cool. Um, so, yeah, the fact that he thought it was either Digitalis mm. or this really weird, obscure poison. Mm. Yeah, it kind of suggests as well, if he thought it was this unusual, maybe what this guy was, like, into. Because yeah. Super people administering it. Yeah, so either someone mm-hmm. who's got access to all this really, like, rare dodgy shit has administered it to him mm. or he had access to the rare dodgy shit and administered it himself mm. so there's some weird stuff going on right here mm. Hicks also revealed that the only symptom of these fast acting untreatable poisons that he did not find was vomiting and he suggested that the raising of the arm witnessed by John Lyons could have been a final compulsion before the man died Yeah, which is it's also fast. really shit mm. um the coroner, Cleland, concluded that, quote, I would be prepared to find that he died from poison, that the poison was probably a glycoside, glucoside, shit, and that it was not accidentally administered. But I cannot say whether it was administered by the deceased himself or by some other person, end quote. He didn't say shit, by the way. I just put that in there. <laughs> you added that. <laughs> I just added that in. Do you think that, because the, the poison is very powerful, especially chosen for the Cusco to kill this guy yeah do you think it would do you think it would poison him by smelling it or do you think he'd have to like eat it I would assume it would have to be actually put into his body yeah, I don't I know think if, so too. yeah I don't know if just getting a whiff of it would be enough to like not. do some damage I would assume that this would have to be like administered directly into him somehow mm-hmm. maybe through the, some people think it could be through the cigarettes obviously the cigarettes in the pack were not the same brand Mm. so some people think that he smoked his way to death oh dear Um, that's kind of a big pack yeah but we don't we don't know it's never actually been determined how the poison got into him did you not smoke a cigarette i don't think so i know Mm. you're welcome so Despite the feelings on the matter from the coroner, he was unable to determine an official cause of death. Mm-hmm. So he basically was like, yo, I think it's poison. Mm-hmm. I would be prepared to say it. But also, I don't know. I can't say it is poison if yeah. I get him. Well, yeah. Um, things didn't really get any clearer after the inquest either. So attempts were made to identify the man using dental records, but to no avail. Um, his fingerprints were also not in any Australian police system, and subsequent international investigations would reveal that they could not be matched to any systems used by either the FBI or Scotland Yard. So, at this point, authorities could not really get any more information from the body itself, but they knew that they might need to do so in the future. So the Adelaide, so the Adelaide police had the man embalmed, which is quite unusual. But they decided let's just keep this in as much of a 
Cautious move. Yeah, cautious move from him mm. because he's going to get this confusion. Mm. Over the next few months, the case gained an incredible amount of media attention and from photos printed in the newspapers, some people thought that they recognised him because they put the pictures of his dead face in yeah. the paper. Because it's not, it's not so graphic, like there's not any injury and it's not graphic, it's just mm. he is dead. Yeah. So they put those photos in the newspaper in the hopes that somebody would say, hey, I know this guy, he's Mr. whatever. He's missing, where's he been? Yeah. Tell me. Um, so some people thought they recognised him. Mm. Uh, but upon viewing the body in the morgue, however, it became clear that this was not the man they thought it was. I would just like to add something. What's that? It's a bold thing. What's a bold thing? I think everyone should get COVID printed or their BB. I think some places do. Can't we just have it mandatory everywhere? I mean, I don't... We're not criminals, so we're like, yeah, let's do it. But a lot of people are big on my privacy. Fuck off. I know. (laughs) You have a mortgage, they know where you live. Yeah, I know. It's like you have a driver's license, they have your photo, and they have your address. A phone bill? Yeah. A job? I know. But yeah, some people are really big on my privacy, and... That's yeah, they just don't want government knowing. <laughs> 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 As a matter of fact, yes, he was not identified by a single person who came to view him. Really? Which is not surprising because we still don't know who he is. Yeah. So if he was identified, we probably came close, but no. Imagine if you recognised him and I was like, you know what? No, I don't know him. And then just dipped. And he's dipped. Just like, gotta go. Gotta go fast. I <laughs> MJ for life. So, Good. by January, mm. with the unusual results of the investigation not leading anywhere, mm. the Adelaide police had begun to try other methods because they were like, "Fuck, we I don't know." <laughs> yeah. So maybe they could find traces of this man a little further out. I don't know. Where's his not seat? that far out. Oh, so into the sea. No. <laughs> <laughs> they went from like Somerton Beach and like the local Adelaide area. Yeah. They went a little far out inland. Inland. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck's sake. <laughs> so dete- this is this is so not as exciting as the route you were going. So detectives began to inquire at dry cleaners. Oh, nice. At train stations. Yeah. And hotels. I like to it. see if anyone had perhaps seen him or anything had been left behind by this guy because he didn't just poof out into existence on somebody's beach he no. came from somewhere he, he had like too. train we're not going that far back he had train <laughs> tickets he had bus tickets so he clearly been somewhere to get to where he was <laughs> on the 14th of january the police checking items at the left luggage plus room at adelaide train station were shown a suitcase which was left at the station on the 30th of november at 11 in the morning so November, end of. Yeah. December. So. January? That's how it goes. Me confused it. So it was there for three months by itself. Yeah. And then the police were like, hey, have you got any suitcases? And they were like, as a matter of fact, we do. So do we keep them just for an infinite amount of time? I don't know. I imagine that there's like, you check an item in. Yeah. And then if you bring back the tag that matches, then you Mm. get your suitcase back. And then I imagine there's a period of time where they'll keep it and then mm. they'll get rid of it if nobody comes back within such amount of time. I guess that's how it works. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so the timeline for this is the suitcase was left according to the tag on it mm. um, on the 30th of November at 11 in the morning. Mm. On the 30th of November in the evening, mm. the guy was at Somerton Beach 
and the witnesses saw him lying in the sand. And then the following morning, he was found dead. Mm. So he just got there. So he literally just dropped out of the seaplane in the morning and then died in the evening, according to the tags on the luggage. When you first get somewhere, you want to treat yourself as a nice beast. I mean, maybe he wasn't a treat himself kind of guy. Maybe he had things to do. Like spying. Like spying. Um, but we'll get to that. Death cigarettes. Yeah, death cigarettes, <laughs> but we'll get to that. So, where am I up to? The police opened the suitcase, and its contents were photographed, yeah. which you can look up online if you need, mm. or we'll post it to the Instagram so you can have a peek while we're reading. Mm-hmm. Inside the case was a red checked dressing gown, and a red felt pair of slippers in a size 7, which was the approximate size of the guy they found on the beach. There were four pairs of underwear, Mm. pyjamas, shaving items, a light brown pair of trousers with sand in the cuffs. So he'd been to the beach in some trousers, and the sand had collected around the hem, the cuff at the bottom of his trousers. Mm. So this wasn't the first beach he'd been to, but there was an electrician's screwdriver, a table knife, which had been cut or filed down to make a shorter, sharper instrument. <laughs> yeah. It was a knife, not knifey enough for you. <laughs> no, it was like a table knife. So I assume when they say table knife, they mean like a butter knife. It was oh, like yeah, a, like it was like a knife for, for eating. Yeah. And he filed it down to make like... A steak knife. <laughs> maybe a people knife. A I mean, spying knife. <laughs> who knows? Um, a pair of scissors, which were similarly sharpened. <laughs> yeah, they were also sharpened. And a small square of zinc, which investigators thought was used as a protective sheath for the makeshift tools. Mm. And also a stenciling brush, which was the kind that was used on like cargo ships and yeah, stuff. Like stencil. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, there was also, also, a thread card. Like a piece of card with a length of thread wrapped around it as opposed to a spool, which mm. we have now. Um, which was orange. And it matched the thread used to repair the lining of the dead man's trouser pocket. So we've got some connections there. Mm. The brand of thread was Barber, a brand not available to buy in Australia, which again suggested that he'd come from somewhere else. Mm. Similarly to the clothes found on the body, all the clothes inside the suitcase also had the labels removed. Mm. Yeah. Interestingly, the police found a name on two items. The first on a tie, the second on a singlet, otherwise known as a vest or an undershirt. On the tie, the the name tag read T. Keane, and Keane is spelled K-E-A-N-E. And on the vest, it just said Keane. There were also three number dry cleaning marks. The finding of the suitcase again made the papers, um, with the advertiser, a local Adelaide newspaper, publishing a story the following day that had the headline, quote, Somerton mystery clue, end quote, which, in my opinion, is a hell of a headline. Yeah, it's very photosomal mystery. Yeah, it's very snappy, it's very Agatha Christie. Got my thing. I want to know all about this. And we're going to go right in there, so it did its job. (laughs) Um, The police now had a name, and they didn't waste any fucking time searching the missing person reports for it. Unfortunately for authorities, however, there was nobody named T. Keen who was missing in Australia. I know. Once again, they turned to other countries' records to help, but no T. Keen was missing in any English-speaking country Mm. whatsoever. The dry cleaning marks also proved to be completely unhelpful, as no information could be found (laughs) in any laundrettes in Australia that matched him. 
The coat in the suitcase was examined by a tailor, who confirmed that like the coat worn by the man at his discovery, the coat also had American-style tailoring and stitching in a fashion that just wasn't done in Australia. That's so cool. It's very cool that they could be like, hey, that's yeah. nice. But yeah, so that just wasn't done in Australia, which meant that... Maybe it's only shorts they wear. I... D- <laughs> <laughs> Very famous shorts. Okay. Um, the police found out that the coat had not been imported. Mm. Interestingly. So either it was given or sold to the man by somebody who had bought it with him from America. Mm. Or he had come from there himself with the coat. As far as the T-Key labels go... There are a couple of ideas as to where this came from. Came's from Kingdom. <laughs> <laughs> where did you get this from? As to where it came from, or as to where it comes from. <laughs> In this era, shortly after the Second World War, clothing was quite scarce. Yeah. You couldn't really get a lot of new clothes. So lots of people had second-hand clothes. Mm. Um, perhaps a mysterious man had bought some clothes from someone called T. Keen and the label that yeah. he claimed it was still in there. Or perhaps Tikin was an alias. It's thought that either the person who cut out all the labels didn't see the two names out, or they didn't mind leaving them in because they knew that Tikin was not the last name. So far, all the police had was a man who had died from an untraceable rare poison, found with no ID, or the tag out of his clothes. He had a suitcase checked into a railway station with homemade tools slash weapons and more clothes than the labels cut out. Nobody who responded to the reports recognised the man. And his fingerprints, dental records, could not be traced to anywhere in the English-speaking world. There was just nothing. The police were baffled. Yeah, They were stumped. They were perplexed, if you will. Mm. They had exhausted every possible lead and every avenue they could think of. So, what did they do next? Put him away. It's a mystery. Case closed, so they dust off their hands. That's not what they did. So they went back to the embalmed body, of course. Um, They took a plastic cast of the man's face and head to make a bust to show the people who wanted to try it. What? Can you imagine? When I think of making a plastic cast, you know the thing that does that? I just can't see it's a bit of wet cement. And you go back to make some like battle pieces or something. He just dips. (laughs) Okay, so. I mean, yeah. Maybe it's a coping mechanism for my brain. It, it's quite possible. You know, ooh. Yeah. So they made a plastic cast of his face so that anyone who came in the future to identify him wouldn't have to look at a slowly decomposing corpse. They yeah, could just look true. at this bust mm-hmm. and that's as close as they could get. Okay. Um, it's clever, but it's also it's, creepy as fuck. It's creepy. It's very They creepy. also had every item of clothing re-examined by the pathologist, who was a professor of pathology at the University of Adelaide. By the time of April 1949, which was four months after the discovery, and three months since the suitcase was found, mm. Dr. Cleland made another discovery. Ooh. And this is the discovery which is the catalyst of this case becoming one of the weirdest mis- mysteries of all time. This is where I think it's going to get good. And I think you know what's coming. I'm scared. I think you know what's coming. So, inside the trousers the man was wearing when he died, on the inside of the waistband was a tiny hidden pocket. Such pockets were not massively uncommon in this era, as they were meant to hold swab washes, which was very fancy. But they were well concealed and didn't usually contain anything else other than a swab wash. Normally you just had a washing down and that was it. So it's 
The reason Karna didn't see it, probably, is because there was no fucking watch in the room, mm. which would take its place. However, inside his hidden pocket was mm. not a fob watch, but it had a very small piece of tightly rolled paper. On the paper, two words were printed in an ornate script, reading, quote, Haman should, end quote. The edges of the paper looked as though they'd been torn out of something. Officials were called from the public library and they were brought in to translate it because, um, unfortunately, in 1949, you couldn't just pop it into Google. No, so they needed to bring in people to have a look at this. Um, the language turned out to be Persian mm. and it means ended or finished. The library official also discovered that the paper appeared to have been torn from a copy of the Rubaiyat of Omar, Omar Khayyam. I'm going to try not to say that again. Mm. The reverse side of the paper had nothing printed on it, and from this it was worked out that this was from a version printed in Egypt. Mm. Most editions did not contain the ornate style print type, so it stuck out a little bit. This, oh really? Mm -hmm. oh, yeah. So this book was popular in Australia at the time, so there were a couple of different versions floating around. Mm. Um, the words Hamam Shud were the final words of the book, and they were printed on the very last page. Mm. The embalmed body now had to be buried like you said, as it was beginning to decompose. He was interred under concrete in a plot of dry ground to try and slow decomposition more, mm. just in case they needed yeah. to, to dig him back up again. He yeah. wouldn't be in too bad shape. Um, up until 1978, around 30 years after the man died, flowers would appear on the grave every now and then, but mm. no one studied them. Oh, that's sweet. At least someone did study mm. it. The police put a photo of the mysterious man in the newspapers and again they recirculated the photo and mm -hmm. they also put in a photo of the paper that they found in the pocket ah. so people could actually see it. Mm -hmm. um, it was it was all they could really do at the time. There was yeah. nothing else they could do, like they did yeah. It wasn't until three months after that, in July of nineteen forty nine, mm -hmm. that the book was actually found. So a man who had chosen to remain publicly unidentified strolled his ass into Adelaide police station with a book and a tail. The man said that his mother-in-law had found the book in his car. He usually kept his car unlocked and nearby to someone to speak. And at the beginning of December the previous year, shortly after the body was discovered, the two brothers went for a drive. The book was discovered on the floor in the back seat, and each man had assumed that the book belonged to the other one. Oh, okay. So, the guy that owned the car just thought it was his brother-in-law's and popped it in the glove box. Mm -hmm. But the other brother thought that it belonged to him, so they just left it there. Because mm -hmm. why would you even mention it if it's not an important thing? Mm -hmm. um, when the news about the ripped paper emerged, the men discussed the book and realised that it didn't actually belong to either of them. That's spooky as That's well. weird. And I hope that not our book could get in his car next time. Yeah, it's, it's, it's weird. Um... The empty space in the back of the book where the final word should be confirmed what they thought mm. because there was a bit missing and they took it straight to the police. Which, like, could you imagine what that would feel like? Yeah. So the police confirmed that this was, in fact, the exact book that the cryptic message hidden in the man's clothes was torn from. But why on earth had it been dumped in a stranger's unlocked car? Neither do I. <laughs> ne neither does anyone. It... The theme of what the Rubaiyat is about gave police an idea for motive as to the man's death. The poem is about living as much as you can while you're able to, and having no regrets when you die. The 
police couldn't help but wonder if the man had committed suicide by taking poison, having hidden the final words of the poem on his body. Mm. The thing is, there was no evidence to prove this is what actually happened. And this is not the last clue that the police would find. On the inside of the back cover were indents as if someone had written something down over the top of the the paper. Mm. The police examined this with a violet light and discovered five lines of what appears to be a code or a cipher. Mm. Again, we're going to put a picture of this on Instagram, but Mm. it's never been solved. It's never been cracked. We'll put a picture up and you can have a look. The code has been attempted to be cracked by experts from all over the world, so good luck with yours, Sophie. I'm not going to do it. But so far, (laughs) it remains undeciphered. Mm. Because there is such a small sample of the code, it's mm. it's been incredibly there's not a lot to work with. How much would God be confused? Exactly. <laughs> um, it's hard to find a solution, as according to the Department of Defense cryptographers, quote, it has insufficient symbols, end quote, from which a proper meaning can be found. Mm. To date, no longer samples have ever been found. Wow. It, that's literally all there is of that particular code. We're going to post pictures of it to our Instagram if you want to have a look because mm. it's it's very fucking interesting to I actually see, see it. it. Yeah, to actually see it is is pretty amazing. Do you think he wrote it or did he? We have no fucking idea. I mean, I think I think he wrote it. Yeah, it's strange to think that he has like his own handwriting that he gave us to never know in the past. Yeah, we'll never never have a clue but I, I think that it was his book and I think he wrote it in addition to the impossible code there was also a phone number Ooh. noted down in pencil on the back of the rewriter so this wasn't an indentation this was actually written in pencil mm. this proved to be a lead which was far easier to track down than figuring out that fucking code the number was registered to a woman called Jessica Thompson who lived about 400 meters from where the body was found on Sunita mm. Beach she did not want her real name to be disclosed and was adamant that it not be revealed. So she was referred to by a nickname, Justin, until 2010, which was after she found her leg. Mm-hmm. Jessica was a nurse, but when the police visited her home to question her, she claimed to know absolutely fucking nothing about the man on the beach <laughs> or who he was, just yeah. nothing. At the police station, she was shown the plaster cast bust of the dead man and D.S. Lean and the technician who'd made the bust, Paul Lawson, were both present for this. Mm. Jessica said that she did not know the identity of the man. How fucking ever. Mm. Some interesting behaviour was noted by the two law enforcement personnel. Lawson said that Jessica looked away from the bust as quickly as possible and didn't look at it again. She desperately did not want to look at that fucking thing. And Lean said that she looked, quote, completely taken aback to the point of giving the impression she was about to faint. This is very interesting behaviour for someone who is looking at a plaster bust of a total stranger they've never met. Even if you know that this guy is dead, it I find it hard to imagine that you would freak out that much. Yeah, you'd feel some kind of indifference. You'd feel Yeah, I mean it would be weird knowing that he's dead. Maybe it's because I'm desensitized to all this stuff because I look at it all the time. But I yeah, she's a nurse. She's seen some shit. She's a yeah. nurse. She was at the, like she was working as a nurse during the Second World War. Mm-hmm. She's seen some fucking things. Yeah. So to see this plaster cast bust of a stranger, I, it, yeah, I'm not feeling Did what she's she, putting down. Was she a pretty? Yeah. Um. 
So the fact remains, he had her phone number and he visited the area she lived in the night he died. So it's looking like, you know, in a bizarre coincidence, Jessica had actually owned a copy of the Leviad. She owned it several years earlier in 1945 while she worked at a Sydney hospital mm. and she met a man who was a lieutenant in the Australian army. This man was named Alfred Boxall and she gave him the book at a visit to Clifton Gardens Hotel. After the war had ended, she moved away and got married and she received a letter from Boxall, which she replied to and she mm. said that she was now married. So whatever relationship they had, she was married now. She mm. wasn't she didn't receive any more correspondence from him after that. So he obviously got the message. Mm. Figuratively. <laughs> Figuratively, I literally. So police had a feeling after this interview that Alfred Boxall was the dead man found on the beach. Mm, that is a big fact. Which, yeah. you can see why they would think that. It makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. However, there was a problem with this. Um, and that is that Boxall was alive and well. And ah, most yeah. certainly not dead. Mm-hmm. Police tracked him down in Sydney where he was definitely not dead. And he actually still had the copy of the Rubaiyat that Jessica Thompson gave to him. Police obviously checked it straight away, and the back page was fully intact with the final words, absolutely as they should be. Mm-hmm. The front of the book actually had a handwritten message to Boxall from Jessica, proving oh. that it was the one that she gave him in 1945. Mm-hmm. Boxall had no idea who the man could be and didn't recognise it. And it actually wow. seemed as though he didn't recognise it. Yeah. Um, to top all of this off, Jessica told police that someone came to visit her sometime around the end of 1948, but she wasn't home at the time, and her mm-hmm. neighbours told her about it later on. Neither Jessica or her neighbours could recall what day this was, but obviously, as the summer Satan was discovered on the beach on the morning of December 1st, the gentleman caller being him fits the timeline mm-hmm. in a rough way. Mm-hmm. Are you still with me? Yes. Because we're going to continue down this rabbit hole and it's going to get weirder. Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> For the next few decades, things were very quiet on the Somerton Mass front. Interestingly, there has never been another matching copy of the Rubaiyat found to the one in this case. No. Yeah, like for real. There's never been another copy that's been exactly the so same. So it's like a single copy edition. It's like a single one copy of edition. One. one of one. Yeah. Which. It's fascinating. It, it's a thought. It's a thought. It's a free book when you join. And not so. quite where I was going. <laughs> <laughs> you were going and then you were like, whoop. <laughs> Obviously, books are printed in editions, mm. and there isn't just one copy of a popular book printed at one time. Mm-hmm. It doesn't happen. Even going, so even going back 50 years, that doesn't yeah, happen. Yeah, yeah. Eventually, in the early 2000s, an almost identical book was found to have been published by Whitcomb and Toombs, which is a New Zealand-based publisher, mm. but this was printed in a more square-shaped format, and it still wasn't the same. Bizarrely, okay, hold on, right. Bizarrely, what? there is another instance of a single copy of the Rubaiyat with no other matching copies. Wow. And yeah. it was also found next to a man mm-hmm. who had died by suicide nope. by poisoning nope. in Ashton Park, I don't want which it. is in Sydney, and it's very close <laughs> to the Clifton Gardens Hotel, <laughs> which is where, if you remember, Jessica Thompson gave her copy of the Rubaiyat to Alf Boxall like months later. Is his one of one as well? Yeah. Yeah. So he's still alive, guy. Oh no, his is I just was a, say, yeah, yeah, no, his is just a regular copy. She's like a death book distributor at this point. <laughs> <laughs> so this guy 
guy is called George Marshall, and he was found in June 1945. So this is like a few Whoa. months before Jessica Thompson gave the copy yeah. to Alf Boxall. Some people believe that these two books being singular copies mm. point towards them being what's known as false imprints, mm. which is kind of what you were saying earlier about the spy thing before you derailed it. <laughs> so yeah. the Somerton Man's clothes, the Second World War just being over, and the Cold War is just about to begin. Lots of people have theories about the Somerton Man being a spy. Some theories suggest that this book was used to create or to communicate codes, mm. which is a theory especially loved because of the still unsolvable code in the back of the book. What the hell is a practice code? And he just got it wrong. I mean... That's why we can't solve it. Just maybe? Ma- no, I don't know. But yeah, they're saying that this copy of the book, because it's different, yeah. would have like the code somewhere in it. And then they would make codes from that and then give it to someone else who had a different copy of the thing that they could... That's what they're saying. Yeah. Um, Another piece of evidence was found around 20 years ago. A witness report was discovered. So witnesses came forward in 1959, over a decade since the body was found, to say that they, a group of four men, had seen something strange. The night before the body was found, i.e. the same night multiple witnesses, so like John Lyons and the so that same time yeah. um, this group of people said that they saw him lying on the sand drunk mm. so this group saw a man mm-hmm. so let me just quote a man carrying another on his shoulder near the water's edge he could not describe the man end quote that's what the police report said yeah. so this man carrying another man was well dressed and walking towards the place where the Somerton man would later be discovered. If this is related, it definitely steers the train of thought away from suicide towards murder. Mm-hmm. Could the other guy have been a spy? Yeah. He could. Superior spy. He's been trained to think of a plan, regardless. I feel like you just made that up. I did. <laughs> <laughs> right now. <laughs> um, this was an official police... Uh, let me start that again. This was an official police witness statement taken by Detective John O. Doherty, mm. PD. Mm-hmm. And it seems a little strange that this was never really acted on. Definitely. Just something to do with. Yeah, so if this wasn't the Somerton man being taken to his death, then the two men in the statement have never come forward to say, lol, this wasn't me. Mm. Like, you'd think if it was just something innocuous, like two drunk guys going home at the end of the night, yeah. that they would have come forward to say, hey, we were there but we didn't see anything. But it doesn't match up with any other thing Mm. that was ever reported. Now, we're going to circle back to Jessica Thompson. Yeah, we're going to circle back to her. Mm -hmm. It's largely believed by basically everybody who worked on the investigation that she knew who the Somerton Man was, but she just never revealed it. She passed away in 2007, and she did take her secret with her to the grave. Kind of irritating, but very sad. Why don't you just literally... Would just say it. You could have just right issue about to die. Just be like, his name's Fred. Where? Yeah. Or something. Blah, blah. You could have yeah. just... But anyway, she didn't. And now she's dead. Oh, no one can ask her. No. Jessica had two children. What if we went to a house and got a Ouija board? No. <laughs> no Ouija boards. No Ouija boards. Never. I don't even want to travel to Australia to go do that. Sharks. But no Ouija boards. We can bring a sharp with us. We're not. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Shock. 
has two children, mm-hmm. a son, Robin, yeah. and a daughter, Kate. Mm. Robin passed away in 2009. But, what? That's quite young, isn't it? For her. I don't know how old he was. Uh, Wait, what year did she die? 2007. And then he died what year? 2009. So he died two years later. I think oh. she was very old when she died. Yeah. And I think Robin, he had Casper. But he was old enough to have an adult daughter of his own by then. So he wasn't, like, young. Good. Um, I'm going to read He was probably about 60, 70 when he died. Mm. Anyway, uh, Robin passed away in 2009, but Kate is not only still alive, but she's actually spoken out about her opinions on this case. Yay. Kate Thompson actually appeared on a special episode of 60 Minutes about the case in 2013 and spilled all the fucking beans. Like, mm-hmm. all the beans were everywhere. Mm-hmm. You want some beans. I have some beans. Can I have some beans? Yeah, I'm going <laughs> to give you some beans. Mm-hmm. Kate Thompson actually believes that her mother, Jessica, was a Soviet spy. I Go know. for it. If she's going to actually say it, she must. Yeah. Absolutely. If she's going to come out in public and say this, mm. she, she clearly believes it as well from this interview. Mm-hmm. So she suspects that she could have had something to do with his death. As, of course, people have long suspected him to be an agent in the Second World War. Mm. Kate believes that both Jessica and the Somerton man were spies during the war and had a relationship. Oh. Kate revealed during the interview that Jessica could speak Russian mm. and actually overheard her speaking it on the phone to someone. Mm. When Kate asked her mother where she learned Russian, Jessica refused to tell her anything about it. Fishy. That's weird. That is, yeah. That is fucking weird. She also had an interest in communism. Oh, goody. Yeah, which, fucking brilliant. Mm. During the interview, Kate said, quote, She said to me she knew who he was, but she wasn't going to let that out of the bag, so to speak. There's always the fear that I thought maybe she was responsible for his death. Mm. She has a dark side, a very strong dark side. She did know who he was, and she told me that it is a mystery that was only known to our higher levels in the police force. Mm. So, like, higher levels in the police force? So, like, the military? Yeah. Like, politicians? <laughs> so, so far, there's no physical evidence that Jessica and the Summerton man had a romantic relationship before he took his death. Mm. Or so we thought. Mm. Because... So, when the Somerton man died in 1948, mm-hmm. Jessica Thompson had a son who was just over a year old. Oh. You see where I'm going? Yeah, that's your baby. So, <laughs> as we mentioned earlier, Robin Thompson is unfortunately deceased. Mm. We do, however, know a little bit about his life. There is largely, thanks to Derek Abbott, who is, sorry, this is largely thanks to Derek Abbott, who is a professor at the University of Adelaide. He started researching this case in 1995, and it became basically his mission in life to solve it. He became really obsessed with it. He developed a theory that Robin Thompson was the son of the Somerton man, and not Jessica's husband. Mm. His unyielding dedication to this case is why we have most of the more modern information that we have. It's because of the work that he did. Interestingly, Robin Thompson was a professional ballet dancer. Oh, he found his dad's legs. <laughs> <laughs> and ha- he actually had a long career in the field. So he was like a professional cool. ballet dancer. He performed. Yeah. 
Like, he was really, really good. Mm. There's not a lot of photographs of him available, but most of the photographs of him in here for doing stage performances. So he was clearly very gil- very, very skilled. Mm. I didn't say very good or very skilled. He's I said very skilled. <laughs> <laughs> if you remember the autopsy, the pathologist, Cleland, specifically remarked that the Somerton man could have been a ballet dancer because his calf muscles were a particular shape, mm. typically seen in people who practice ballet. It's a very niche, very specific detail, and it's bizarre that the man suspected to be his son ended up in that field. Derek Abbott believes that Jessica introduced their son to ballet dancing and encouraged it because it was something his father did. Abbott could not locate the original autopsy reports because they are missing. Great, that's marvellous. But Professor Hember, an an anatomy expert, examined the autopsy photos of the Somerton man and found that his ears had a distinctive feature. So his upper ear is fucking hell. (laughs) You can tell I don't normally speak for long periods of time. His upper ear hollow, known as the Simba, is larger than his lower ear hollow, which is known as the carver. This is super fucking rare. That is. Yeah, so we don't have that. No, we don't. I don't know if... I'm going to look at everyone I meet and be like, do you have this? I just assume people don't have this. So yeah, only between 1 and 2% of the population have this have this feature. Yeah. In his bid to find out as much information as possible about the mystery man's genetics, Abbott went to a group of dental experts with all the info he could gather from Cleland's notes about his teeth. The experts concluded that he had a rare condition known as hypodontia, which is where your canine teeth or your incisors mm. grow right next to your front teeth without Ooh. the little ones in between. Um, huh. It's around as rare as the ear feature. It's huh. present in about 2% of people, so it's, again, unusual. Derek Abbott contacted Robin's daughter, Rachel, to try and get more details about her father. He asked her for photographs, if there were any, and a sample of her DNA, so a potential sample of Robin's, could be obtained. She was more than happy to discuss the case with him, and she gave photos to Abbott in 2010, which could be obtained. Through examination of these photos, it was obvious that Robin Thompson had both a larger Simba than a Carvin and hypodontia. He had both of those things. Wow. The chances of him having both of these features yeah. as a complete coincidence is between 1 in 10 million and 1 in 20 million. Fuck that. Yeah, <laughs> so fuck that whole thing. No, no way. That just happened. So, in a bizarre series of events, yeah. Derek Abbott and Rachel, who continued to work closely on the case, yeah. fell in love. They got married, and they have three children together. The couple are desperate to know if, after all these years, the Somerton man is, in fact, Rachel's grandfather. Mm. They even have the most recent digital composition of him smiling in life framed in their home. It's really cute. So Derek Abbott got a a digital photo fit commissioned on him that he could, like, put out because he was so busy and stuff. And I've seen the the thing. We'll put it on Instagram. And it's it's really Mm. nice. He's like totally. He just looks like a Alive. a real living person who looks happy taking a photo for work or something. That's really and sweet. they've got that framed in their house, which is I really love cute. That. Um, so thanks to Derek Abbott's consistent effort to keep his case in the media and in public interest, mm. the Australian government has finally approved an exhumation order. Yay! So the Somerton man was exhumed in May last year, twenty twenty one. It happened. 
Yep, and everything is on track to extract DNA from his bones and teeth and yeah. to test both of those things against Robin and Rachel's DNA, mm -hmm. but also to compare to compare on genetic genealogy websites. Oh, so cool. they want to find out if he's Robin's father and mm. Rachel's grandfather, but also if they can find any of his other relatives on genetic genealogy websites, mm. figure out who he is and where he came from. So, Dr. Anne Coxon, who is part of the Forensic Science South Australia, said, quote, The technology available to us now is clearly light years ahead of the technology available when his body was discovered in the late 1940s, end quote. She also said that tests would use, quote, every method at our disposal to try and bring closure to this enduring mystery, mm. end quote. So, at the moment, it's literally just a matter of waiting. So, sometimes matching DNA can take a really long time. But we're definitely far closer to solving this than ever before. And that's that's all there is that I have. Just mm -hmm. short story. So yeah, that is that's the story of the Sullivan man. We're now waiting. We're now just it's an ongoing yeah, the case has never been closed, it's yeah. never been shelved, it's just been cold for a very long time. And we're really fortunate that just last year he was interviewed so wow. so yeah it's the work is being done to get him found and what have you been working on it must be incredible i i do feel it's incredible to like we're gonna find out who you are yeah and then um i do know that because of the formaldehyde used when they embalmed him mm. getting dna is going to be more difficult because of all the chemicals you have to recut everything i don't know how much of him though is gonna be there. I a oh. normal a normal person that's been on the ground for thirty years yeah. would be just skeletal bones. Oh. Obviously. Yeah. But because he was embalmed with formaldehyde, I don't mm. know what that looks like after three decades. So he might be goopy. Goopy at minimum. Yeah. I think like they're gonna have to probably go into like the the bone marrow in his feet to mm. try and get DNA out of him. But I think yeah. there should be something they could use. This is an hour long. I kind of doesn't shock me because it's, it's a lot to go hour. through. It's a lot to go through. So that was 26 and a half A5 pages of notes that I wrote. Mm. I'm surprised it didn't take longer, but then again, we didn't really deviate that much. We didn't. We and did I think I spoke kind of really. quickly. You, you did. Because <laughs> I just was nervous. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's not it? Yeah, so we've not done this before. Um, no, it's weird. Kind of talking to each other and then somewhere else maybe yeah so that's things yeah that was that was my first story time that was really fun thank you for having a story. did you learn anything i did good we do think that this case is a matter of time mm, now yeah. with all the technology that we have we would be on like the last one yeah, this is the last hurdle. It's, it's literally a matter of time until they can find out more about this guy. I definitely think they're going to find out whether or not he's related to Jessica Thompson's son. Mm. I think that's going to be the thing that will come out first. I hope so. And I think that we just need lots of people to upload their DNA to like genealogy websites yeah. so that cold cases like this can be solved and people can have their names back. Because he's got a name that's not yeah. the Sullivan man, yeah. but nobody knows what it is. And Except Jessica Thompson, who fucking died in 1921. Mm. But yeah, so, um, book closed. That was 
Thanks for crying story time. I got to enjoy this. Mm-hmm. Uh, how do we sign off? We should have talked about this. I don't know. We haven't rehearsed anything. <laughs> <laughs> okay, like, the mic's plugged in. Let's go. Let's <laughs> 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 Next week. Next week. Uh, Shall we do something next week? <laughs> In other words, is that a, are you going to research something this <laughs> week? I was going to say, don't need to do something. I'll need to do research because I'm going to do it again. Um, do you know what we probably case we might do? Do you want me, Do you, shall we choose a case together or do mm. you want me to choose a case and just surprise you with it? I would quite like you to just surprise me with something. Okay, because I love surprises. Okay. I love so surprises. So we decided this first case together because mm. it is a mix of creepiness and crime. And it's our first one. And it's our first one, so we decided it together, so then we could, we both knew what was coming. Mm. But okay then, so for the next one, I'll just choose a case. Yeah. I'll pick a case out of my book and just surprise you with it. And I'll just be like, oh my god, what a jelly beans, I need two. Yeah. We'll do that. Hopefully I can do that. (laughs) So we'll do that. Um, Every now and then, Sophie's gonna tell you a spooky story. A creepy one. Or a crummy one. We can do both. Or a crummy one. But yeah, like, you can throw your wild card. And just make up a story. And you'll be walking all your dog. <laughs> <laughs> right, so, um, thank you for listening to us. <laughs> um, okay. <laughs> so, to all the listeners out there, yeah. like Karis and our mum, yep. we hope you enjoyed this story. Kind of um, fun time. Yep. Um, bye. Bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs>